The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. So good to be here this morning and to see each one of you back in the house of the Lord. This morning I want to go back to the book of Ruth and I want to remind ourselves where we've been. We've been on this little journey with this sweet little Moabitess woman who is a stranger to the covenants of promise, who is apart from the nation of Israel, who has been in a land who is an enemy to the kingdom of God, and yet by the providence of God has uh, been able to uh, encounter this woman, Naomi, who's a real negative Christian. Let me just tell you, she's a negative person. Um, and she's had some experiences that would lead her to be negative in this life. She's lost her husband, her two sons. She's been living in a, in a, in a strange land of idol worship and a place where there's no teachings of the kingdom of God except maybe in her own home here, uh, there where, where they were. And then she'd been there over a decade, at least 10 years, but it looks to me like she'd been there a good bit longer than that. And then finally came back and came back at a time when, uh, when the barley harvest was beginning. And even in that time, Naomi was negative. She couldn't, she couldn't see the providence of God. And then uh, as she continued, uh, uh, as, as their lives continued now back in, in, in Israel, in the land of Bethlehem, the area of Bethlehem, the, the, the name itself meaning house of bread, uh, they experienced the providence of God again by the fact that this little Ruth, this little Moabitess woman, came to the field of a man named Boaz, a man who was a mighty man of wealth, who had not fled during famine from the kingdom of God, but who had stayed, who had realized that even in famine, the kingdom of God is better than the kingdoms of the world. And so she, she was there and she began to, uh, she began to glean in his field and, and in, the, in, his, in his field, not dressed like a model on the, uh, on the ramps of, uh, uh, of New York City, not someone who was uh, a movie star, glittery and, and dressed scantily and, and trying to do everything she could to allure a man. No, she was a working young lady bent over in the field, covered up, <laughs> She was not uh, uh, trying to woo the man as the world would tell you to woo the man. She was just trying to serve God. And that's what happened to her. It's what will happen to you. Let me just tell you is that when we try to serve God, that's when the blessings flow, not when we try to work it out ourselves. And she caught the eye of Boaz. And she saw Boaz said, who is she? Boaz was a godly man. Boaz was a man whose focus was the proper focus. Who is she? And they told him who she was. And he found out about what she'd been doing and how she'd been taking care of her mother-in-law. And he said, you're a virtuous woman. We all know that. We see what you've been doing. Then you know the rest of the story. Last time we talked about how Naomi tried to circumvent God and help God out. Said, okay, Ruth, uh, you've caught his eye. Now you dress up and put on pretty perfume and uh, or good smelling perfume and a pretty dress. And uh, you go in when he's good and happy. And really the truth is, uh, in the time of the harvest, what had happened was they had had a party and it was all men. You know, they were out there working in the fields. The women were back home at that time and they were out there working in the fields. And, and so they, it was sort of a, a time of festival and party. And it said, uh, 
uh, he'd had a little drink and he'd had a little he'd, be, he'd eaten and he had drunken and his heart was merry which is a euphemism for he'd had a little a little to drink <laughs> and he was and so what Naomi was saying to her he said now you wait till he's good and drunk and goes to sleep and then you go in there where he is you uncover his feet you lay down at his feet and then he'll tell you what to do wink wink nod nod you see I believe that's what Naomi was doing. She was saying, we're going to work this out. Uh, and, and, you know, she didn't really tell her to go down there and do anything immoral or improper. But she said, just do what he says. What did Naomi expect a man to do who's been drinking and has gone to sleep and wakes up in the middle of the night with a beautiful lady at his feet? <laughs> but, oh, we saw last time how that Boaz and Ruth she was a virtuous woman, and he was a godly man. And Boaz had prepared for this day all his life. See, he made his decision beforehand that when I get in a situation like this, I'm going to do right. <laughs> you know, I'm going to tell you, and I, I repeat myself from last, last week, but I just want to remind you young men particularly, you've got to prepare for that time. <laughs> You may be thrust into a situation sometime where the natural outcome is to commit fornication or to go against the, the Word of God. You've got to prepare in your mind ahead of time. You've got to make the decision ahead of time that when I lay down at night and I wake up startled in the middle of the night and there's a beautiful woman laying across my feet, I'm still not going to violate God's law. You know? And that's kind of a strange circumstance, isn't it? We've got to prepare for that, men. You've got to be ready ahead of time. And Boaz was. Nothing happened. I mean, there are commentators I've read that try to say, oh, yeah, something happened. Nothing happened. She wasn't laying by his side. She was laying at his feet. And when they woke up, even though the natural progression of events would have been to commit some kind of fornication or some kind of violation of God's law, they both, Boaz said, you know what? I know you're a godly woman. You're a virtuous woman. And Boaz was a godly man. And then he said in chapter 3 and verse 11, he said, And now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requirest. And that brings us to chapter 4. I told you when we started this series kind of that I was trying to focus on the literal occurrences that, that were happening there and focus upon Boaz the man, Ruth the woman, and Naomi the woman and give some practical lessons here. But I can't avoid the typology here. I can't avoid the way that, uh, that, that, that chapter 4 lays out the beautiful picture of the kinsman redeemer. So this morning... That's what I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about the kinsman redeemer. In, in Hebrew, the word is goel. And the word goel is used hundreds of times in the word of God, but it's used several, many times here in the book of Ruth, especially in chapter 4. You see, you notice in chapter 2 and then in chapter 3, we begin to read about Naomi saying, hey, this, this man is one of our near kinsmen. This man is somebody related to us. And, and that was exciting to Naomi because she knew what the law was. Now, the word goel, as I said, means the kinsman redeemer. Now, the kinsman part is, is what, it, what he is. That's the relationship he had to, to Ruth and Naomi. And the redeemer part is the action that he took to fulfill his position as a kinsman redeemer. 
In order to understand this, we need to go back just a little bit, and I'm not sure we'll finish it today. We'll probably have to break this up into a couple of different messages. But, but the first thing, the background of all this is found not just in the law, but even prior to the law. If you'll turn back to Genesis chapter 38 for a minute, and we're not going to read the whole chapter, but uh, some of you that are Bible uh, students will remember that this is the time when... Uh, uh, when uh, Judah, this is sort of an interlude between the time Joseph had been sold into slavery, and, and you kind of, it's like a movie, you're switching gears, you're looking at, at some, at points you're, you're seeing what Joseph's doing, and then it's like the camera goes dark and it opens back up on the setting involving some of his brothers. And here's a, a story about Judah who went down from his brethren, notice, and turned into a certain Adulamite whose name was Hera. And, uh, and he, he, ended, he ended up uh, uh, marrying his daughter. She, and this, this was a Canaanite. Um, this was a Canaanite there. And she bore him three sons, Er, Onan, and then another son named Shelah. And so Judah had gone in and had three children. And then Judah, uh, uh, you know, marriages, as I said, were arranged back then, uh, which I like still, but it doesn't work today. Anyway, uh, but... Uh, but uh, um, uh, Judah uh, goes down and arranges a marriage for his firstborn son, Ur, and he died. He committed some breach against God, and the Lord's the punishment in that day for him was that he, he died. He died. And now I want you to notice, and we're not going to read the whole thing, but verse 8, it says, Judah said unto Onan, this is in Genesis 38, Go in unto thy brother's wife and marry her and raise up seed to thy brother. Now understand, this was pre-Mosaic law. This is before Moses had come on the scene. But when you continue reading here, what you're going to learn is, is that Onan, it says he knew that the seed should not be his. So when he, when he went in ostensibly to fulfill his duty as a brother-in-law to raise up children in the name of his brother, uh, he didn't do his job. He refused to do it because he knew that whatever child that was born would not really be his, it would be his brother's. So guess what? God slew him. Now, now, the point of this is, and, and by the way, the, the rest of the story is that when, uh, when, when Judah, uh, as, as life went on and as, as time passed, uh, the Shelah, the son, was, was a lot, the, the only son left was a lot younger. He, and Judah told, uh, uh, told Tamar, his daughter-in-law, said, now you just wait around and when he gets old enough, I'll give him to you. Uh, to do what's appropriate and, and what's uh, supposed to be done in the culture of that day. But he didn't do it. <laughs> he didn't do it. He never did it. And the, and the story about Tamar is, is that she, uh, she ended up dressed, dressing up like a prostitute and she seduced her father-in-law and she had uh, sons by him, which turned out, by the way, to be in the lineage of Christ, Perez and, uh, uh, and, and his brother. So uh, now here's the point about this. There is a... There is a in this culture of the day, there was an understanding that if a man did not have children, number one, it was a terrible breach unto him. It was a terrible, it, it, was, it, it was awful if a man didn't have children as his progeny. That was a big deal in that day because the, the sons, the oldest son, and especially inherited from his father. And, uh, and if, if he didn't have any children, if he didn't have any sons, then his line died out, his name died out. Now that was before the law, but then we see that as the law, um, uh, when the law came on the scene in Deuteronomy chapter 25, this very concept was codified by God through Moses. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 5, it says, If brethren dwell together, and one of them die, and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her, uh, and take her to him to wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. Now, it's strange and weird today. We don't have the same. We have the, a weird, I mean, we would think that is strange and weird. Uh, but that's the way it was in that day. And notice how important it was under the, under the law. It said, It shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. And if the man, now look at verse 7. If the man, the brother-in-law, decided not to do what he's supposed to do under the law, it says, if the man like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, My husband's brother refuseth to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel and will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. And then the elders of his city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face." <laughs> And shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto the man that will not build up his brother's house, and his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him that hath his shoe loosed. That's a strange, I get that's understand, that's a strange ceremony. And I tell you, I've never had anybody spit in my face, but I can't imagine a worse thing to happen. I, I, I just, I hope that if somebody did that, I would restrain myself, but I don't believe I'd be able to. If somebody spit in my face, first thing I'm going to do is start swinging, you know, because that's just such a terror. But this is by the law. By the law, if this man would not do this, then that widow was to spit in his face and be able to move on. You see, it was the law before. It was the, it was the, the practice beforehand, and it's the law after Moses came on the scene. Now, <clears throat> I want us to turn to one more place. I want to turn to one more place, Leviticus chapter 25. And again, this is all background to kind of understand what's going on in Ruth chapter 4. In Leviticus chapter 25, beginning in verse 10. Now remember, remember let's, let's read this right quick. Ye shall hallow the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. And it shall be a jubilee unto you, and ye shall return every man unto his possession, and ye shall return every man unto his family. Now I want to say, it's so hard for me to, to stop here, not to stop here and start preaching on the jubilee. Because the jubilee is precious. The jubilee is a wonderful time. It's the 50th year, and that's the day when the captives are released. You know, you know our song, uh, Blow Ye the Trumpet Blow? That's about the jubilee. <laughs> Now, I want to say to you, child of God, we're living in the Jubilee. <laughs> we're living, we've been living in the Jubilee for the past 2,000 some odd years. But the Jubilee was a time when a man who had sold his property because he couldn't afford to keep it, or a man who had sold himself because he couldn't afford to take care of his family, it, it was not forever. It was only until that 50th year. So if you sold yourself in the 10th year of the Jubilee, working up towards that 50th year, you were going to be a captive for 40 years. And in that 40th year, you were going to be released. But in the meantime, in the meantime, if you look with me over to verse 47, and that's really all the time we have here. It says, If a sojourner or stranger wax rich by thee, and thy brother that dwelleth by him wax poor, and sell himself unto the stranger or sojourner by thee, or to the stock of the stranger's family. After that he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brethren may redeem him. 
The rest of that story tells us about the uncle and the uncle's son or the brother or somebody that's nigh. And verse 49 says, any that is nigh of kin unto him of his family may redeem him. Or if he be able, he may redeem himself. That word nigh of kin there, that phrase is the same word used in Ruth. The goel. The kinsman redeemer. You see what he's saying here is this. During that 50 years, during that time before the 50th year of Jubilee gets here, if there's somebody in your family that's, that's, that has the right qualifications and is willing to do it, then you can be redeemed from your captivity. Now, I lay, I, I lay that out for you because this is the context in which Ruth, remember Ruth occurred, the setting was during the time of the judges. After Moses and after Joshua and during the time of the judges when the law was still in effect and the culture was the same or similar to what it was in Judah's day, uh, this is the time that Ruth came and that's why the kinsman redeemer concept is so important. I want to say to you, child of God, we have a kinsman redeemer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where I want to go this morning. I want us to look at Ruth and Boaz, but I want us to keep ever in our mind the fact that we have been sold. We were sold by our father Adam. The day he ate of the fruit, we were cast and plunged into sin. We were sold into bondage. We were sold into sin. And we need a redeemer. We need a goel. We need a kinsman redeemer. So, having said that, let's turn to chapter 4 of Ruth. And let's read just a few words here. Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat him down there. And behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Now, one other thing we need to remember is this. You remember when Ruth went to Boaz and when he, she basically proposed marriage to him, said, I want you to do the part of a kinsman redeemer for me. He said, I will, but there's one that's closer kin than me. There's one that's closer to me and I've got to uh, follow the law. I've got to fulfill the law. I can't supersede him. So we've got to go to him and see what he will do. So this is what he's talking about here, that Boaz went to the gate and he sat down and this nearer kinsman came by. I, want, I think it's important. I think it's important to understand something here about this too. Notice his name. What's the name of the nearer kinsman? <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. Because he doesn't tell us. We know Boaz's name. We don't know the name of the nearer kinsman. Now I think that's important because whoever... Whatever, I don't know exactly who wrote this book, but I know God inspired it to be written. He did not deign to give him the name of that person. He did not want that recorded because he wasn't willing to do his part, as we'll see. Oh, but Boaz was. Boaz was willing to do it. So I want us to look at this idea. He says this kinsman comes by, and let's keep reading just for a few more verses. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit you down here. And they sat down. And he said unto the kinsman Naomi that is come again out of the country of Moab selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is none to redeem it besides thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. Uh-oh. 
Boaz is in trouble, isn't he? Boaz, doesn't, Boaz wants to marry Ruth. He wants to redeem this possession. But this man says, oh, I'll redeem it. But now let's continue reading here and see. Then said Boaz, there's some more information here that needs to be put, uh, put out there. What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. There's more to it than just getting the land. This kinsman, this nearer kinsman, he wanted the land. He wanted the goods, but he didn't want the duties. He said, Boaz says, when you buy the field, you got to marry the girl. You buy the field, you get the woman. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, I read all that to you so we kind of get the context of what's going on. But now I want to talk to you about the kinsman redeemer. See, there's certain qualifications. There's certain qualities and characteristics of the kinsman redeemer that make him the kinsman redeemer. First of all, the redeemer must be qualified. He must be qualified. He must have the right relationship. He must have the right relationship to the subject of redemption. See, Boaz was that near kinsman. And we read the qualifications for, for, being, uh, for being that near kinsman. You had to be an uncle or a brother or so forth out through the family. And the nearest kinsman first, there was an order of preference. And here we had a nearer kinsman. Boaz had to get him out of the way in order to fit the bill for redeeming Ruth. I, an interesting question here I want to ask, and I really don't want to go into it. And maybe tonight we may come back to this, but, but is there a nearer kinsman? Who is nearer of kin to us in a spiritual sense? Well, we've got angels. You know, we're created beings. They're created beings. They're, they're pretty near of kin to us, are they not? <laughs> I tell you, somebody that's nearer of kin to us than our kinsman redeemer is a man named Adam. Because don't we descend direct in the flesh, in nature, we descend directly from him. His blood multiplied by tens of thousands, if not tens of millions, is flowing through our veins. Oh, Adam, he's a nearer kin to us. Can the angels redeem us? Can Adam redeem us? I'll tell you something else that's nearer of kin to us is the law. The law. See, the law was given for us. The law, in a spiritual sense, is much nearer kin to us than grace. Don't you find yourself laboring under the law? Don't you find your... In fact, that's where it all started is Adam's breach of the law. <laughs> There's a nearer kin to us, but we've got a near kinsman who was also our redeemer. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ was near of... You had the goel, the, the kinsman redeemer, had to be near of kin to the subject in bondage. That's why Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ could not come down as a spirit and appear down here, as some said he did, just appearing in the body of, of flesh. They just, you know, there were those in the time of Paul, the first century AD, that were saying, uh, oh, well, he didn't really come as a human being. He came looking like a human being, but he was really a spirit because God is a spirit. They were the Gnostics, they were called. And they, there was a huge fight in the first century between Paul the apostle and the other apostles and those who promoted this idea that Jesus Christ on the cross didn't really die. He just dismissed his spirit because he only looked like a man. 
No, beloved, I want to say to you, Jesus Christ could not have come as just a spirit. He could not have come as anything other than a man. Because uh, if he had come as anything other than a man, he could not have fulfilled the role of being our near kinsman. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 16, it says, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. <laughs> Over in Galatians chapter 4, lest there be any question about what he was, it says in verse 4, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. I said this before and I say it again. If there was ever anybody that could say, oh, I'm above the law. You know, we have a lot of men and women today. They get in office and they like to say, oh, well, I'm above the law. We all have that idea in some place hidden down deep. I'm not subject to the law. Jesus Christ was made under the law. If anybody ever could have claimed to be above the law, it would have been him. And yet, because he gave the law and yet he came under the law. God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. You see, Jesus Christ had to be our near kinsman. He's called the root of David in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5. And that term son of man, those terms son of, he's son of God and he's called that, but he's also called son of man 87 times in the New Testament. You know why? Because the Lord, the Holy Spirit wanted to make sure we understand He was truly man. Even though He was God, He was truly man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John the Apostle says. What a, what a glorious thing it is that He is our near kinsman. He had to have the right relationship to the subjects of redemption. But I'll say this about our Goel, our kinsman redeemer. He also had to have the right relationship to God. You remember what we sang here as we opened services, uh, that number three about our daysman, with one, on, one hand on the heavens and one hand on the earth. Our daysman is our mediator. He had, you know, Job said there is no daysman betwixt us. There is nobody there. But you know what? We find in the New Testament that Christ is the mediator. Christ is the only mediator. Oftentimes we try to place a mediator between us and Christ as a prayer or a priest or a preacher or a church or something like that. But beloved, there's no mediator between Christ and man because Christ is the mediator between man and God. He's our day's man. We're told the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. You know, Jesus is not the only Son of God. He calls us sons of God. But He's the only begotten Son of God. He's the only begotten Son of God. He tells us in John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. And I guess John 3.16 is one of the most famous uh, phrases, the most famous uh, verses, and sometimes I'm afraid the most, one of the most misunderstood verses, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Not an angel, not the law, not Adam. 
His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John writes later in 1 John 4 and verse 9, he says, he says there, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. You see, the Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer, must be qualified. He must have the right relationship both to the subject of redemption and to God. But that's not the only qualification. It wasn't just the kinsman redeemer who is related properly, but he must, he must not only be qualified, he must also be able to redeem. He must be able to redeem. And that means he must be able to afford the price. He must be able to afford the price. In Hebrews chapter 10, we read this, beginning in verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. You know what he's saying here? The law might be a pretender to the kinsman redeemer. The law might be one that's closer kin to us, and many people today try to make the law the kinsman redeemer, the way of salvation. But he says, the law can't ever save you. <laughs> the law can't ever save you. The sacrifices required cannot make the comers thereunto perfect. Those who offer the sacrifice are not made perfect by those sacrifices. He says, logic here dictates that. He says, for within would they not have ceased to be offered? Because if the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. In other words, the Old Testament sacrifices didn't put away sins. The Old Testament sacrifices reminded you that you were a sinner and that there needed to be a sacrifice. And he says in verse 4, in case you didn't understand it already, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. You know, uh, the law that we read in Leviticus about the redemption, it, it said that, you know, if a redeemer's available, you can be redeemed. But here's the problem. Adam ensured that no redeemer is available from among men. All the Pharisees, they thought you could keep the law. And they said, the more we keep the law, the better off we are. The more, the more uh, likely we'll be making, making it into the portals of glory. <laughs> but Adam ensured that there was no redeemer from among men. And in fact, Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 16 says that God saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. In fact, let's turn there. Let's just look at that right quick because that's a precious statement that it gives us it dashes our hopes and then it gives us hope isaiah 59 and we'll just look at verse uh, 16 it says he saw that there was no man and wondered there was no intercessor therefore his arm brought salvation unto him and his righteousness it sustained him <laughs> and he goes on to describe our redeemer you see, Adam ensured that there would not be any possibility of any man, including ourselves, redeeming ourselves. But back over in 1 Peter, see, this, this, this kinsman redeemer must be able to pay the price. 
And here's the price, beloved. 1 Peter 1 in verse 18, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. See, he tells us what we're not redeemed with. You can't get rich enough. You can't work hard enough. You can't have the best traditions. You can't have the good enough traditions to get saved through this. He says, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. See, I'm sorry, but our salvation is a bloody salvation. I remember Brother Spann, Brother Raymond Spann, that uh, uh, was my pastor for so many years. He said one time he was preaching. Uh, he was pastoring a church, and a lady came to one of the deacons there and said, you know, all he ever preaches about is the, is the blood, the blood, the blood. He preaches, that's all you ever hear. <laughs> And Brother Spann told him, he said, if I don't preach the blood, I haven't preached. <laughs> because there is no hope apart from the blood. Our, our salvation is a bloody salvation. Do you think those old Jews over there were just, uh, uh, were just bloodthirsty? They just said, oh, well, we want to kill all these. They would have been better off to keep those animals and raise them and sell them. They, they weren't bloodthirsty, beloved. They were doing what God said because God had said that it would require a bloody sacrifice. And it wouldn't be the sacrifice of the bulls and goats. He must be able to afford that salvation. You know, we often say salvation is free, but it's not cheap. Salvation is free, but it ain't cheap. It required the blood of the perfect lamb. And he must be able to accomplish it. There were many obstacles to overcome. Death, hell, and the grave, I would say, are three pretty strong obstacles that had to be conquered. <laughs> and uh, many hoops that the Lord Jesus Christ had to jump through. He had to fulfill the law to a jot and to a tittle. Boaz had to keep the law. Boaz had to do everything necessary in order to redeem her under the law. You remember what he said as, he began, as we began this? He says, I will do to thee all that thou requirest. You know, that's what our kinsman redeemer said to us. He said, I'm going to do all you require. I'm going to take care of everything. And that's why we're told in Hebrews chapter 7, I believe it is, and uh, verse 25, he says, he says this, Wherefore he is able, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. That word able there means to overtake or to attain to. He is able to satisfy and to save. And guess what? Guess what else? He declared it on the cross. That's why he was able to say in John 19 and verse 30, it is finished. You know the difference between primitive Baptists and most other denominations? Is that we just, we don't believe that Christ died to make man savable. We believe Christ died to save Amen. his people from their sins. So the Redeemer must be qualified and the Redeemer must be able. But you know, the nearer kinsman had all these qualities. He was a near kinsman. He was qualified. He was able. He was getting ready to pay the price. The problem with the near kinsman was he wasn't willing. He was not willing to do it. See, the kinsman redeemer must also be willing. He must also be willing. 
You know, the law is able to save us. If you could keep the law to a jot and to a tittle, in your, not just in your actions, but in your spirit, you could be a perfect man. You could, you know, Adam was perfect before the Lord, before he broke the law. Oh, but our kinsman redeemer has to be willing. You see, Leviticus, if you go back and read chapter 25 and verse 48, it says he may be redeemed. Not must, but he may be redeemed. Not all kinsmen redeemers were willing. This nearer kinsman was not willing to do what it took. He wanted all of Ruth's stuff. He wanted all of Ruth's possessions, but he was not willing to take her. You see, he must be willing not only to redeem her, but to redeem her publicly. You know, most men, uh, and you know, it's, it's in all men and women as well to be unfaithful. And, uh, and there's many men that are willing to have a little secret tryst on the side. <laughs> Most affairs are conducted in secret and at night in the dark. <laughs> but this kinsman redeemer must be willing to do his part publicly. He must be willing to redeem publicly. Notice in verse 1, Boaz marched right up to the city gates. He went to the gate. He sat down there and the providence of God uh, sent this uh, nearer kinsman by him at that time. Verse 6, notice what the other kinsman said. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. I don't want to redeem this inheritance because it would mess up what I've got going on. Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, was willing. And he was willing to do it publicly. He fulfilled all the prophecies openly. Uh, in John chapter 18 and verse 20, when they were accusing him, uh, of, of violating the law. Jesus, Jesus answered, he said, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple whether the Jews always resort and in secret have I said nothing. Let me ask you this. <clears throat> you ever done it? You ever said something you didn't want anybody else to know? You ever gone to a friend or maybe to your wife or husband and said, hey, don't tell anybody this, but let me say this. You didn't want it out. You didn't want it out because it might hurt somebody's feelings. It might might get out that you were, had a negative attitude. Might get out that you had a sinful attitude or something like that. Jesus Christ never said anything that he didn't mind being repeated in public. Amen. And that's a good way to live, isn't it? Amen. That'd be a good way for us to live. But see, our kinsman redeemer was willing to do this publicly. And notice in verse 7 of Ruth chapter 4, as we kind of bring this to a close. Notice the public nature of the ceremony here. It says, Now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing. For to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, Buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe, and Boaz said unto the elders, unto all the people, Ye are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and Malon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren, and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. And all the people that were in the gates and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which two did build the house of Israel and do thou worthily and eat Ephratah and be famous in Bethlehem and let thy house be like the house of Pharez whom Tamar bare unto Judah of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. Notice the public nature of this ceremony. He was proud of it. He was satisfied to do it publicly. 
And finally, let me just bring it to a close by just going back to what was something we sort of touched on earlier. He must be willing to pay the full price. Mm -hmm. The full price. You know, remember, there's no earthly redeemer for us. All of our redemption, all the characteristics of the redeemer were fulfilled in Christ. Jesus was willing. Jesus was willing to pay the full price. I'm sorry to say, in so many denominational churches of the world, that out there, they're, they're, the, the message is that Jesus almost paid the price. And there's something for you to do. There's a step you've got to take. But beloved, I want to say to you that Jesus said in John chapter 17 and verse 24, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. He wanted his children there. He wants his children there today. And he will have them there. See, he fulfilled all that was necessary. He paid the full price, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Timothy says, or Paul says to Timothy, that he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Yes, beloved, our kinsman redeemer fit the bill, just like Boaz, just like Boaz did for Ruth. And in fact, in a much greater way, because there was much greater obstacles to overcome. See, one of the obstacles he had to overcome was our, our sinful flesh. You know, it bothers me to hear somebody say if you, that, that it's up to your choice and your will to get yourself to heaven. Because I know how afflicted my will is by my nature. I know exactly what I would do if it were left up to me. I would choose to go right down the same path I'm going on. As, as Brother Mike Goins has said, we're in a con such a condition that we would not choose him if we could. Of course, we could not if we would. You see, he had to overcome death spiritually and death physically. Death, hell, and the grave were what he had to overcome and our Goel, our kinsman redeemer, did it. And that's why on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. I'm thankful to stand before you today to preach to you a finished salvation. A redemption that was wrapped up in completely in the price that Christ paid on the cross. I love the doctrine of election. I'm so thankful that he chose a people in Christ before the foundation of the world. But let me tell you, without, without redemption, the election would be would be pointless and, and, and would have no value. See, he had to come and pay the price for those that were chosen in Christ. And one day, he's coming back to get us. May the Lord bless these words to our hearing. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.